Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Tara Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Tara Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hi. Hi there. Today on the show, we're going to talk exorcism and the devil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then we giggled. I, I have no idea why. Uh, I think I, I we I looked at each other it. and giggled. Yeah. yeah. And the devil. And the devil. Like a really bad, like 2020. Yeah. Exorcism oh, and, and the, the devil. devil. Yeah. Like a bad, yeah, I don't know, 60 minutes intro <laughs> person. All right. So let's start real basic with... Uh, kind of what an exorcism is, the rituals around it, and then we're going to expand that to social context of exorcism and how uh, something called the satanic panic has developed since the 70s and continues today. We'll get uh, into some specifics around that. Um, and also talking about how there's also a lot of statistics about how more women are possessed than men in our statistical analysis because of the cult, there are cultural reasons, which we're going to get into for that. I'm sure we'll get to this at, at some point in the discussion too, but just looking at um, one of the things that came up when I was doing my research for this is um, what we would think would be the opposite. Priests actually get more calls now mm -hmm. than in the past. And I have some information about why these priests think that, but um, clearly right. I know a lot of people this is a general statement. Not as many people are as religiously oriented anymore. So um, where films and and um, when you look back at a lot of the films from the 70s and 80s, they were really like charged with this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, some of the stuff that I was looking up discusses why we actually get more calls rather than less calls, even though we tend to be a less like, I don't know, religiously oriented community. So yeah, I can think of some reasons for that just yeah. analytically, but so that'll be the first chunk, more all that culture and sociology piece of it. And then I believe the second half of this, we're going to get more into, um, well, something that we talk a lot about here on the show is some uh, criminality concepts some mental health stuff. I want to bring up the case of Annalise Michel, which I think is the way you pronounce it, uh, which is uh, her exorcism and her story, which gets into... Um, the conversation around mental ill, mentally ill or spiritually disturbed that, and, uh, that case ended in a, in a trial and everything. So it's a really interesting, uh, that we will briefly touch on today. And also talking about how, um, the, the devil's within and, and the, the five or six reasons why, uh, many of our most famous criminals and serial killers that we have spoken about either tangentially or in longer series, uh, you know, the devil made me do it. They blame the devil. And, and, you know, a few weeks ago we, we spoke about Ramirez for a few weeks and he, he was obviously one of those people. So, so we'll probably, uh, do some callbacks to his, his discussion as well. So, so, all right, back to one, what we're going to start doing is discussing uh, exorcisms. So for those of you who don't know, an exorcist is a religious or spiritual practice uh, for evicting demons or other spiritual ent entities from a person or an area 
too, because like houses can be possessed, etc. Um, people believing a person or an area is possessed. And then depending on the spiritual beliefs, because there are differences between how they used to do exorcisms, how they do them now, how different factions of the Catholic Church do exorcisms, you know, they can be, there's a variety, some, some more simpler, uh, some more complicated. Uh, but it's an ancient part of a lot of cultures and religions, not just Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep that in mind as well. Um, there's actually, a, you know, there's a ritual around exorcism, right? There's a way there to is. do it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, oh, the, f- the first thing I know is that there's a, they do the litany and then they read Psalm 54, save me, oh God, by the name, et cetera. Um, there's gospels, specific gospels that they read in a particular order. Uh, there's a preparatory pair, prayer, and then there's an exorcism where there's certain words that they say, like, I exercise thee, most vile spirit, et cetera, et cetera, which we've seen some in movies, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, and then there's a point at which, uh, you know, they, they cast the devil out. Yeah, there's, um, <clears throat> I was watching this, I guess it's a document. It wasn't a documentary. It was more of like um, he was on several different shows, like 2020 and gotcha. 60 Minutes like interviews. and all that. Interviews. Yeah. So I watched a few with him. His name is Father Lampert. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was trying to talk a little bit about um, the way that film and television or media talks about exorcisms and what actually does happen mm-hmm. um, or how they actually decide whether or not someone requires an exorcism. Right. And he, so what he did is he debunked some of the mm. myths, which, which were um, one being that all Catholic p- priests believe that people can be um, uh, possessed by the devil and, and how they err to the side of caution and that they do exorcisms all the time. And, <laughs> right. and he was saying that exorcists are actually trained to be skeptics. Mm-hmm. And he states that it's actually his job to rule everything out before an exorcism is even a consideration. So um, what I thought was really interesting, and I know we're going to get into the psychological piece later, but he, since we're talking about um the order of things is first they're act there. People are actually required to go through a thorough psychological evaluation and they're asked about the history, their history of addiction experience in occults, wizards, black magic, magicians, fortune tellers, and so on. Um, and there's actually a sheet that they're actually, they're asked to fill out. So have you ever tried to communicate with spirits or the devil itself? Do you want to be free of the evil influences you believe are presently affecting you? And will you do what must be done? So, I think the movies, because we like horror and we like to blow everything up, paints it as like a a priest sees this, freaks out and just does an exorcism. And it was really interesting to hear him discuss this because he's like, we actually, it's really the last resort. Oh, absolutely. Or a lot of movies portray it like... Uh, just because the family requests one. Right. Oh, and that was another (laughs) thing he said too, was exorcisms are never done 
they're they're very rarely ever done in like the house Mm -hmm. he will do them in a church or somewhere where there's already positive spiritual energy backup (laughs) so he's like i only execute the exorcism in a sacred space like in a church so if you watch a lot of these movies they'll do it right in the house or like he's like it's not like a back alley exorcism no yeah it's uh, movies dramatize things right we know that so it's more dramatic and then it feeds into the culture and then the culture thinks it's real (laughs) Yeah, he was discussing this woman who had been um, raped by her father when she was young. Mm-hmm. And he, he remembers um, hearing voices coming out of her. And the voices were like laughing uncontrollably. And he did this really just like we hear in The Exorcist, like you can't get rid of us. It was like really mm-hmm. deep like that. And mm-hmm. um, the dialogue was, you can't get rid of us. We have been here for too long and you are not strong enough. Um, so it was really interesting to listen to him because I don't know, I, I don't rule anything out, mm-hmm. um, whatever the source of it is, whether it's evil energy or, or what, but it, I can't imagine what it would be like to witness something like this, regardless of what it is. Yeah. I, I think that's an important point actually, is that no matter uh, your personal beliefs about whether exorcism is real, whether the devil is real, whether possession is real, that it's actually sort of, you know, uh, separate from the point is mm-hmm. that whatever's happening in that room, uh, you know, and that's true of psychology, right? It's mm-hmm. like when we're sitting with a client and they're telling us a story and there's a perspective there about what they feel and what they think about what someone else is doing or how they feel, et cetera, regardless of whether you feel that's factual or true or what have you, we as therapists have to go with what their reality is Mm -hmm. and work from there. And that's the same with delusions or anything else. And so I think that's a really important point that, you know, those of you who may or, you know, think this is a bunch of hooey, you know, Mm -hmm. an exorcism, that's not, we're not here to debate that. Right. It's, It's more, what is it? How is it viewed? What is it really, you know? And whatever it is that they're experiencing in those moments, right. it, it must be terrifying. Very. I wanted to add um, to the the trajectory of like how, you know, they do the prayers and stuff we were talking about. Mm-hmm. He says that they use something called um, insufflation breathing. It's like a breathing prayer that apparently the purpose is to arise the devil in a frightening way. So it's causing, it actually causes the person who's the host to shriek and then literally be lifted up and pushed out of their chair. So the way that he was describing it, he's like, I I literally just breathe. And you think that I would have like breathed with the hurricane wind. Mm. And so he has seen people. And again, this comes back to what we're talking about, how much of it is psychosomatic Mm -hmm. versus is there really a a spiritual force at bay? Well, and he's saying what he's witnessed. So we're just, we're going to take him at his word for what he's witnessed. And he's, he says, I, it's a very like, delicate breath and you would think that I was blowing a house down mm-hmm. and it literally lifts them up and he's seen people like fly out of their chair. It's I cr- imagine he's seen a lot of yeah. really interesting And there are things. just things that are in- inexplainable. I think. Of course, yeah. of course. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Thank you.
Hi there, we're back. This is Shannon and Kathy with Shannon and Kathy with Terror Talk. I sort of messed that up. Okay, so my in answer to your question, my thought while you were talking about the um, good father was that it strikes me that when you feel possessed, whether or not we believe someone can be possessed or not, but when the person is saying, I feel possessed by the devil, et cetera, or exhibiting behaviors, when you live in a culture or society that downplays that, that doesn't believe it's true, that gaslights you basically and says, that's not happening to you, mm-hmm. um, then there's going to be more, just like we talk about the unconscious and the shadow, there's going to, you push it all down and try to hide it. And then there's going to be more of an uprising. So that, to me, that makes sense just sort of psychologically that they would get more calls now, even Mm -hmm. though it's not talked about as much. In fact, it, because it's not talked about as much. Me too. And, and just the many people don't go to church or not many people, not as many people have a church community. Like in American culture, right? what he was saying, yeah. Right, where um, they're now reaching out and calling someone when they feel desperate. They're not they're not um, connected to any sort of faith. It's interesting because I was listening to a podcast, uh, uh, the Monster podcast is back with a new season and they were talking to in the course of the story they were talking to some um african-american community preachers Mm -hmm. and i was struck at one point when they interviewed this one preacher and he said well you know black people go to church Mm. he just you know they were talking in context of what was happening and that's his perspective is that black people all black people i mean that's how it came out i'm sure if you like continued to question him he he may not think that but I, th- I think in his community that's what's true for him is that everyone he knows that's black goes to church and has some kind of faith or worship yeah i think um there's definitely a larger black community that goes to church only because my understanding and i hope i'm not overstepping when i say this and if, if I am, anyone can write in and correct me. But I, I, my understanding, too, is for a lot of black people, it's not just a, a place of worship, but it is a community that has protected them through oppression and things like that. So I think we, we, black, the black community still relies heavily on their church community, not just for faith, but for other things. Um, and I don't think going to church as a white person, it's not that it means anything different, but I think there are other layers behind the black church community versus the white church community, if that oh, makes sense. I think, yeah. I think that's fair to say. I don't know what they are, and I can't right. explicate that at all. <clears throat> but I think maybe that's why he made that statement where it's like, this is something we all do. This and, is something and, that's more, how about more a part of our culture than maybe he was saying maybe for your white person culture, because right. the, the interviewer was white. So I felt like it was kind of right. pointed in that way. Right. And just so everyone knows, um, the Monster podcast, uh, this season, I think it's the third season, they're doing the DC Sniper story. Um, oh, wow. They've okay. done the Zodiac, they've done three seasons, I think, so far. They've done the Zodiac Killer, and they've done the Atlanta um, child, child murders. Ki- yeah. So anyway, I just want to give a shout out to that because I'm, I am, you may notice I am trying to mention the podcast that I listen to because we want to support each Mm. other. (laughs) So let's talk females who are possessed. Mm, Okay. So I looked up, um, this is off of spiritual science and research foundation. Why women are more possessed than males. I found this to be (laughs) 
incredibly um, pathologizing yeah, and blaming. But so here there were four main reasons. Um, but before I go to that, I just wanted to, to highlight why we're talking about the, this is that the majority of portrayals in television and film are the female character is the one who is getting possessed and needs the exorcism. Yeah. Um, I think it, some of it has to do with women's sexual desires are more pathologized. I think there's a huge connection between um, what we perceive as evil and sex being evil and being used as a weapon and tempting. And historically women are the temptresses, you know, from if you look at old, the old Testament from the beginning of time, we are the creators and instigators of evil due to the idea that men have needs and cannot control themselves. You know, God forbid there's any responsibility there. So the idea that demons can pass to another person through sex. So if a woman is having sex with a man and she can pass that through and she can actually be the carrier of the possession, really just so outdated and shaming. Um, so here are four reasons from this model. The first is physical reasons. This is like straight out of the 1950s. Okay. Hormones in the female body change frequently and thus create more sensitivity. This sensitivity in the body attracts distressing energies. Mm -hmm. So I guess we could translate that into women are hysterical and emotional and therefore we are just like trap doors for possession and can't be president and and because of our periods we no. can't be Emotion, president because of the emotional palette right of our and we're possessed yeah okay well, sure the psychological reasons women being more emotional negative energies are more attracted to them this is looked at as a personality deficit being emotional, right? So worrying, feeling remorse, mm -hmm. which I think it's funny, right? Like having empathy is yeah. a sign of a weak mind, oh, okay. blaming oneself. So we, we just open ourselves up to evil because we're more suggestible. We're more emotional. Um, I don't know. I think we have a pretty emotional president in the office, but um, <laughs> neither here nor there. Right. Number three is when she is of service to her children and husband, her ego reduces. However, when she is sentimental, her ego increases. So when she's giving to others and her ego reduces, she's not as susceptible. But when she's sentimental and feeling too much, she opens herself up to being possessed, which I think is so loaded. It's like, listen, here is your place. You need to be a wife and you need to be a mother. And if you do those things, God will protect you. But if you think about yourself and you are, you know, just empathic um, and self-centered, then you open yourself up to evil. I'm sorry, you mentioned this, but where is this coming from? <laughs> Spiritual Science and Research Foundation oh, okay. was the name, yeah. Uh, and then number four, God, okay. You could be all right. <laughs> <laughs> An attractive woman mm -hmm. who takes care of herself mm -hmm. has high body awareness and negative energy that entices others in them and negative energies are attracted to them. 70% to 30% ratio regarding negative energy, meaning female to male. So 70% of females carry the negative energy necessary for possession and only 30% of men. 
I'm sorry to laugh. It just sounds like gobbledygook to me. Well, right it now. is. Okay. But this is the fact that this was okay. even written. Yeah. Right. Tells you that there's a belief system around this. Okay. Yeah. No, there totally is. And I, I understand that. And I, and, and it's in the culture. It's in the movies. It's, you know, mm-hmm. and when you're, when you're, when you're speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of laughing to myself and, and sometimes outside of myself, uh, not only because it sounds like gobbledygook to me sometimes, but also because of being uncomfortable with it. And I laugh because the uncomfortableness of it is that I am profoundly aware of how there's truth and fiction in all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like there are gender differences. We mm -hmm. have gender differences. We can't extrapolate that all women are the same and that all men are the same. No. That's, that's where we get kind of into trouble with right. people like that all women are emotional and mm -hmm. da 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 and and I think that's more of a it's a spectrum mm -hmm. of emotion just like men can be more emotional and women can be less emotional you know whatever when I'm using the term emotional to sort of in, encapsulate what you're saying mm -hmm. but yeah I mean there's because so I'm laughing out of like huh that's uncomfortably true sometimes of some women mm -hmm and of some men etc so mm -hmm. it's just interesting yeah it's like i don't know take a deep breath shannon all right <laughs> so <laughs> that leads me into uh so i want to I, I think it's it would be interesting now to bring into this just a brief moment of annalise michelle um and i am or Mikel. i'm probably pronouncing it wrong my my bad so a woman, uh, born in 1952, died in 1976. She was German. Uh, she is important because she underwent um, 67 exorcism rites in the Catholic Church and then eventually died. So this is a much bigger and longer story that I'm actually hoping to maybe do an episode or two if you're game on mm -hmm. at some point. Um, this is the woman who was the foundation for the story um, in the film, The Exorcism of Emily Rose from mm -hmm. 2005, um, starring Dexter's sister. You know, did mm. you ever watch Dexter, the TV no, show? No, I couldn't get into it. Um, his sister, who's, who's great in mm. that um, show. Anyway, she plays Emily Rose, and Emily Rose is based on um, Annalise Mikkel. I'm going to go with Mikkel because of the German situation there. Um, so the big thing about her in the end, and again, this is a much bigger story, is that she was um, religious and loved it and wanted to be a catechist, which is a person who um, teaches you your catechism when you're a kid. And also... So it wasn't like she was in a family where it was forced upon her and all of that. It wasn't that sort of situation. She was very God-fearing. She was very kind and generous. She was known to be all of those things. And then um, she was also diagnosed with epileptic psychosis or temporal lobe epilepsy. Like Ramirez. And, mm -hmm. and she had a history of psychiatric treatment as well, uh, which started apparently... And again, when we do this in a more full, robust way, we'll get into it. But apparently, uh, when she was 16, she had an experience of being um, held down by what she characterized as a, uh, an evil force or um, demon. But then she also 
shortly after that had an experience of being filled with um, the power of Mary um, and a good feeling. So she was possessed by what she thought was um, a demon and also possessed by um, angels Mm -hmm. or Mother Mary, et cetera. So that's just a really small microcosm of sort of how it started for her. And then we move on and it goes on and on and on. And what it ends up, the, the, the bottom line is that the Catholic church gets involved. She, um, she's on medication. She's been diagnosed with, you know, schizophrenia, disturbed behavior, delusions, all that stuff, depression, et cetera, on and on. But she has, you know, these 67 exorcisms and then ultimately dies of what they have said is uh, malnutrition and dehydration. So she was in a semi, semi-starved state for almost a year while the right, the different exorcisms, the rites of exorcism were being performed. She apparently weighed 68 pounds and she had broken knees because of the continuous genuflections mm. of um, either demon possession or epilepsy or whatever you would, you know, mm-hmm. we'll get into it some other time, uh, contracted pneumonia, et cetera. So that's the end of her living story. And then what ends up happening after that is that the state prosecutor um, brings uh, charges, her parents and the two priests that were involved in all this with negligent homicide. Mm. So the body gets exhumed, et cetera, and then there's a whole court case. So I wanted to bring that up because not only is it a, an ex- extremely interesting story and the basis for this movie, and, and also I think it represents um, what you're talking about with women, and I imagine the culture you know, in the 1960s and 70s that she was living in. Mm-hmm. Um, it was before the satanic panic type of stuff, but the exorcisms did happen right after the exorcist movie and the book and all that, like that was right in that pocket. Mm -hmm. So she died in 76 and supposedly these exorcisms happened, you know, a year, year and a half prior to her death. And that would be that 74 to 76 and exorcist came out in 73. So there's just that like cultural theme. The omen was in there too. The omen. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to bring that up for a lot of reasons. One is I, I read some about it in order to prepare. I just got, I got sucked down a rabbit hole, man. <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting. And I immediately put it on my list of like, okay, we got to do an episode yeah. or two on this. Cause this is a fascinating case because what ends up happening. And I think where the fascination comes is what happens during the trial and how, um, you know, was she mentally ill? Was she possessed? Was it negligent homicide? Was it them just doing their job, et cetera? Yeah, I had so many things go through my head when you talk about that. I used to have, when I was doing more conditional release work, um, the majority of patients I had who had committed their crimes simply because they thought their victim was demonic. Mm -hmm. And there's a term for it. I cannot think of what it's called right now, but we do have a term for it. Um, A lot of these religious delusions are common in people diagnosed with either schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, which is basically schizophrenia and a mood disorder combined. Um, So they're very similar diagnoses. Schizophrenia just doesn't have the the mood component to it. And so we know with schizophrenia, there are abnormal and um, 
aggressive amounts of dopamine in the brain. And so we oftentimes, one of the, the, the key criteria for schiz- people with schizophrenia are hallucinations um, and delusions. And so with, with the case you're talking about, I'm not seeing that so much as are they blaming her, her epilepsy? Um, because with schizoaffective or schizophrenia, you're not seeing this, the hyperkinetic, mm-hmm. you're not seeing the contortions. You're not, unless someone, I mean, even with schizophrenia, we might see a catatonic type, but we're not seeing someone who's just flailing all over the place. So I know that when we did the, the episode on witches, we talked about, um, the, uh, on the east coast what was it called the uh oh my god i'm sorry i don't know boston the the witch tra- salem salem oh, witch trials oh sorry goodness. massachusetts <laughs> i'm like oh that salem witch trials <laughs> how how one of the the main women she was accused of being demonic and her both of her children had epilepsy mm-hmm. and so epilepsy historically has been looked at as being related to some sort of uh, evil possession well and then you take into so uh, again all good questions all interesting questions to investigate as if as we know more details about that case and go into it in a couple episodes at some point because i think those things would be explicated in in that discussion for sure um what what brings to mind for me is that you know there's been this whole um epilepsy is often part of the story in these in these um, possession situations for, you know, children of epilepsy. And then there's sort of this development of, because of the brain in this, right. Mm -hmm. And how it, how it fires. And it brings up a thought I just had about the God helmet. Do you remember it's um, this, it was an experimental apparatus that originally was called the Corin helmet or the Corin octopus. Um, it's inventor was Stanley Corin, uh, and it was developed to study creativity, religious experience, and the effects of subtle stimulation on the temporal lobes. And so, um, this researcher Persinger used a modified snowmobile helmet that incorporates solenoids placed over the temporal lobes, and it produces magnetic fields mm. um, that he described as like weak but complex. So it's not like it's not going to shock you or anything. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. Um, and the pattern of fluctuation in the magnetic fields is derived from physiological sources. So. Like, for example, patterns that appear in EEG traces um, from the limbic structures, et cetera. And they were seeing what happens in the brain, creativity, religious experiences. And and people that had the God helmet on um, experienced all sorts of things. Everything from, you know, being dizzy or feeling strange to... Um, hallucinations or godlike experiences type of thing so it kind of brings that up for me because there's been a lot of study on the brain and um you know possession it, it kind of is in this line right where it's like if you were to if you were able to put the god helmet on someone like annalise and and see what was go- firing in her brain during this that would have been a really Interesting. Fascinating thing, I mm-hmm. think. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to uh, talk about in particular, just because we talk so much about criminal behavior on here, is I read this interesting article. 
There's one that's widely available. If you uh, search an article called Rationalizing Corruption, Did the Devil Make Me Do It? It's by this professor, Myas de Klerk. He also did a more research-based article that is on, um, is in, you know, like I, we can get it in our academic libraries, et cetera. But this, this is a friendly version of the article. And he talks about um, us being coming, I mean, becoming conscious of our unconscious processes and um, like unco- what unconsciously motivates corrupt actions in order to be more in control of our ethical behavior. So basically it's, you know, motives of how offenders believe that rationalization acquits or indemnifies them or redeems their corrupt behavior. So I just want to, I, I thought it would be interesting to bring up and, and get your take mm-hmm. on just like little bits and pieces of this. So it comes up, uh, did you want to say something? No, go ahead. Um, He calls it the six devils within. And I thought this was especially topical because we're talking about the devil and exorcism. And then we also, uh, a few weeks ago, just ended our, you know, four part series on Ramirez. And he was one of those people who Mm -hmm. had a a rationale around the devil. Mm -hmm. And, um, so the, f- the first one is the acquittal of personal accountability. So that's a, kind of an obvious one. Mm-hmm. You know, denying the devil made me do it is a way to deny personal responsibility for the ethical transgression or transferring it elsewhere. You know, like you're transferring it to the devil, like I didn't do it. And you're saying I'm an innocent victim. It's also, you know, rationalizing that, right? Like because mm-hmm. you, that you're the victim of something. Um, a projection of blame or blameworthiness, which we see a lot mm-hmm. in what we do. Um, so that's kind of a really, that's a simple one to mm-hmm. me. Um, the other, and the next one is con- consequentialist redemption. <laughs> There's a lot of big words. Well, that, uh, would be, that would be Ramirez, I think. Okay. So I'll just read what it, what it yeah. says that is just so everyone knows it's where offenders attempt to minimize the consequences of their deeds through denial of injury. Um, claiming no one was hurt or damaged, so no real harm was caused. Oh, okay. And denial of a victim suffering because of it or comparing their actions to more extreme forms with worse outcomes. Okay, and I misinterpreted what that was. I think the words are big and they can be interpreted lots of different ways. I, I so. interpreted it as, um, the, what is it called again? Con- consequentialist redemption. The redemption piece, I think, is what uh, I hung on to because he believed that he was going to go to a really great place if he did what he did. Okay. Well, maybe we'll find that in these, but that one was where offenders attempt to minimize like that. It wasn't, um, their, the denial of the injury that, you know, claiming no one was really hurt or damaged Mm -hmm. by what they did. Um, the next one is deontological redemption. So this is where the wrongdoers justify their behavior acts rather than the consequences by arguing that a corrupt deed is technically not Ill- illegal according to the law and therefore acceptable regardless of moral implications. Or they claim ignorance or gray zones in legislation and even justify their behavior as an unavoidable part of business practices. And I think I think what this sort of means to me is when you say the devil did it, it's like, is that, then what did I, did what I did, is that really legal? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, illegal, sorry, is what I meant. Um, because some corrupt acts are not necessarily illegal, yet border on the fringes of morality. For example, like tax evasion, um, 
in many countries, payment of facilitation fees is strictly not illegal. You know, stuff like that where mm-hmm. it's like, well, it's not really illegal. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, and then this one is uh, narcissistic indemnity. Mm. Yeah. We like that word around here, narcissist. Yeah. So whenever we throw it out, it's good. Uh, where offenders claim entitlement to certain rights and believe that they deserve more, that they have accrued credits that can be offset against the acts and have a perceived specialness. Yeah. I think we get a lot of that, right? So yeah. these beliefs overpower their moral capacity. Um, leaders need a healthy dose of narcissism to be successful, in other words, like drive, charisma, self-assurance. Um, but narcissistic traits such as like entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, hubris. And there's no checks and balances. They just abuse it. Yeah, for sure. It's like the moral liability, which, you know, obviously rationalizes corruption. I mean, narcissistic personalities rationalize corruption all the time. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they rationalize everything they do. It's just really prevalent in our culture right now. Yeah. Well, it's sensationalized, right? And then sacrosanct indemnity, which is providing justification that usually accepted norms can be or have to be sacrificed to release higher order values. For instance, well, that would be Ramirez. I'm protecting yeah. the company or it's a good cause or like that. We well, need to get rid of bad people. I we see. Need to, yeah. So um, there's even been horror movies based on that revenge of like, I actually did the world justice by... Dexter in some ways. It's the anti-hero yeah. cry um, that we as a society love. I mean, it's Joker. It's yeah. it's someone who's an anti-hero, someone who's sick and twisted and for lots of reasons, sometimes valid reasons, but mm-hmm. it's... Uh, Ramirez talked a lot about how he felt that everyone had this in them and how there's uh, certain reasons for what he did, you know, mm-hmm. almost like we owed him a big thank you. Uh huh. Because right. he was ridding the world of yeah possessed people. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, the last one is intentional indemnity, where offenders typically argue that they did not mean any harm or mischief, and that they plan to pay back or fix the fraud at some time in the mm. future, creating self deceiving delusions of indemnity. And that's interesting because for some reason Bundy flashes in my head mm. in that moment. I mean, he never said the devil made me do it, but. If we take no, it out of, he would the, never give the devil credit. No, of course not. <laughs> it's like if we take it out of the context of this, you know, list or the the topic of today. It just made me think of that because it's like he he plays such the victim. Oh yeah, he plays such the like. I had a bad child. He does, but then on the <laughs> flip side, he also plays like he was in complete control and. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he turns it on and turns it off. Yeah. So it's like when he's doing interviews with the with the public. He's the victim and all mm-hmm. of that. So, yeah, much more manipulative. I mean, very successfully manipulative in a, to me, in like a higher functioning way mm-hmm. than some of the other people we've talked to. And I don't know why I went down the Bundy road, but know. shows are starting to back up on me now. Um, <sighs> <sighs> movies. Let's talk some movies just as we cruise into our What the Hell segment. Um, the Exorcist, obviously. I have not seen this exorcism of Emily Rose movie. I haven't either. I feel like there was a a period where there were so many exorcism movies coming out mm. that I kind of stopped. Stop. I, I just 
to me, there's only one exorcist movie and it's the exorcist. <laughs> well, I would say, I mean, I've, I've said it before, but I, I like the first two conjuring movies and there's exorcism. Yeah. The, conjur- the conjuring and uh, haunting of Connecticut is a really great one. That one's not so much of an exorcism as it is a haunting of a, a, a home. That one really scared me. The haunting of Connecticut, the first one. Um, but I feel like we went through this, these like five years where it was like the exorcism of Emily Rose part five. It was like, how many times has she been, this poor woman just put her to rest. Yeah. When exorcist um, three was on one of the list I, I wrote, but there, I, I can't even keep track. There were some like outside of the exorcist series, there were an abundance of them for a while. And I don't know, nothing really drew me to them. I think I'm really freaked out by the old ones. The well, I mean the ones. Amityville horror. Yeah, the Amityvilles are good too. You know, they're that's an end stigmata. Um, yeah, with what's her face, Patricia uh, Arquette, and the right with Anthony Hopkins. Um, yeah, all all the sequels to The Exorcist, obviously. And then there's been a there's been a bunch of them, like you said, the Haunting in Connecticut. The um, uh, God, there's so many Exorcist movies. I know, it's ridiculous. Um, the Order, I remember that one. Um, the devil inside. I mean, there's a lot of them. The devil, which is the one that was with, um, oh God, Charlize Theron. Oh, I don't know. Really? Oh, I'm going to look it up right now. Charlize Theron was in, she was the priest. No. <laughs> Just kidding. She was the person possessed. <laughs> called, I'll find it right now. It's one of her older ones from the nineties, probably devil's advocate. Oh, wow. Keanu, Keanu that's Reeves. a poll. That's another one that could be a really good psychological yeah, conversation. That's a actually. really good one. Keanu Reeves and uh, is it Pacino? Yeah. yeah Pacino yeah, yeah. plays the devil. That movie for me is so underrated. I think so too. I remember. I, I mean, saw that in the theater. It gets a little nuts, of course. And that's why it's yeah. underrated is because it takes some non-linear uh, story structure. But I, I just put it down on my list for, you know, I was talking about like movie and mental health and movies and mental health and what movies would be really good to talk about a lot of mental health. And that that's one of them for yeah. me. Yeah. That's on the list. Yeah. So that's our discussion on exorcism, movies, stories, et cetera. A general overview in a way. I think there's a lot we could do if you or I in the future choose to pick a particular case or topic to go down this road. Cause I do think it's one of those, um, one of those topics that uh, shows so much about culture and also about internal psychology. I mm-hmm. just think it's a really good one. So we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to do our, what the hell segment as we do. So we'll be right back. Hi, this is Shannon and Kathy. We're back. We're going to do our What the Hell segment. Woohoo. Would you like to go first? Yeah. <laughs> I tried to trade us off, but I, I, I sometimes I forget. I thought this one was pretty funny. Okay. A good disguise obviously needs to hide your true identity. Mm. Furthermore, a good disguise needs to be inconspicuous so you can blend in with the crowd. The disguise chosen by Dennis Hawkins, a 48-year-old Pittsburgh man who decided to rob a bank, failed on both accounts. His disguise consisted of a woman's blonde wig, a pair of fake breasts, and clown pants. Okay. (laughs) The first problem was that the getup revealed his face, 
which was captured on CCTV surveillance. And you might guess that Mr. Hawkins wanted to fool people into thinking he was a woman. (laughs) In that case, he probably should have considered getting rid of his mustache and goatee. Oh, golly. The second problem was that, that his disguise was not exactly inconspicuous probably because of the clown pants. So (laughs) right after the police released a description to the public, a gas station attendant called to report someone sporting that unique look (laughs) while trying to steal a car. And as if the man were not noticeable enough, when police arrived, they found Hawkins covered in red paint from a dye pack exploding in his face. Oh, no. (laughs) So post-robbery, he tried to mug a woman and get away in her car. She just ran off taking the keys with her. So dressed as a woman with a Blonde wig, fake boobs, and clown pants, leaves the bank. With red face opens the bag and explodes (laughs) on him and then tries to steal a car. So as he's at the gas station, he's covered in red paint, clown pants, a blonde wig with a goatee and boobs, fake breasts. Picture this, trying to steal the car from this woman and she's just like, I'm out, bye. You can have it. Yeah, she ran off with the keys and the guy was probably watching the news and he's like, I think we got him. This can't, I mean, there can only be one of these, right? There can only be one of these. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's like oh no across town the yeah. same thing is happening yeah there yeah, might no. if there's two i've got one yeah although i can see where oh yeah boy. that's a funny look <sighs> okay so mine is this a dozy burglar <laughs> sorry the word i just don't even know what that is okay a dozy burglar caught snoozing in a hammock in his victim's garden told police he was quote unquote off his head tripping during a drug addled crime spree. Sean Davies admitted to burglaring three sheds at a property in South Wales um, while carrying a knife and quote unquote off his head on speed. Oh, that's a great combo. Yeah. When asked by police if he was responsible for the burglary, the 27-year-old replied, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I was off my head tripping. The court... That's an interesting defense. I really couldn't tell you. Maybe. The court heard how home run... Home owner, sorry, home run. Home owner Yvonne Fowler walked downstairs to her kitchen at around 8.30 a.m. and noticed her garden furniture had been moved. Prosecutor Stuart McLeese said she then spotted the defendant asleep in a hammock in her garden. Mrs. Fowler called the police, who removed the knife from between Davy's legs. I don't know why that was important, but and asked him if he knew where he was. He told the officers he was in a town that was about 15 miles away, so he didn't even really know oh where God. he was in that moment. Police noted his pupils were dilated and his body <laughs> was jerking <laughs> before finding two grams of amphetamine in his trouser pocket, which he said was for personal use. Oh, well, I, that he was not going to I sell it. it was. Didn't want that charge. Yeah. The court heard he damaged a window and broke a padlock, leaving items from the shed strewn around the garden. Mr. McLeese said he apologized to the homeowner as he was removed. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, so sorry. I'm just out of my head. Tripping. Amphetamines. Sorry. <laughs> when asked if he was carrying the knife for a particular reason, he replied, God knows. <laughs> Can you imagine? This guy's just like, I have no idea what I did. I don't know. I'm just here. I, 
I'm just here now. In a victim impact statement, Mrs. Fowler said she had been unsettled by the incident. She added, this person has no respect for other people's properties or feelings. Can you imagine? Okay. Uh, Davies had 29 convictions for 112 offenses prior, including several burglaries, and was released from his last sentence a month prior to the incident. Um, he's been diagnosed with ADHD and had problems with drug dependency. No shit. <laughs> he admitted to the burglary. He admitted to carrying the knife in the in a public place and possession of amphetamines. And um, he was sentenced to 16 months in prison. And an order was made for the knife and drugs to be forfeited and destroyed. <laughs> the recorder told him, you were in a dreadful condition. Oh, my God. And he was. Wow. There it is. So thank you so much for listening. Um, please tune back into our Shrink Chat show on Friday. And next week we are talking about David Lynch. So come back for that. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.